So we'll turn to Psalm 16. On Thursdays, I Skype with Pastor Vineet in Pune, India, and he had mentioned that his mother-in-law had come down for a while to visit Saya, Saya's Vineet's wife, and it just... It had been, he said, about 10 years. I think they've been married a little longer than that since she'd been down uh, to Pune for their wedding. It's just a reminder to me um, when I travel there that even Saya is uh, not from there. She's from the far north of, of India. It takes, it's quite a trip. And so she's being encouraged. Pray for Saya and Vineet's encouragement during this time. Ministry's going well. He's, the, um, Saya's village up north have asked Vineet to come up and to, to preach the word, and so there's opportunities there for conferences, and he's hoping sometime in March to be doing that. As I thought through just the theme of homelessness and helplessness and hopelessness, estrangement, alienation, I, I thought of that in light of Psalm 16, because we see right there in verse 1, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. You know, at least for most of us, I would say, I'd venture to guess that we're not familiar with physical, social, homelessness, helplessness, alienation, estrangement. We see it going on around us. I'm, I'm so thankful when I travel to find uh, a U.S. embassy because in some ways it's a, a mark of the United States and there's a comfort there. That when, if things go awry, I can at least go to somebody I can trust that understands my, my citizenship. I'm also so thankful as a Christian to have a church marked with the gospel. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says the gospel is of first importance. So to be able to travel and find a place that loves Christ, preaches God's word, to know that that in some way is a, an embassy even of heaven. In many ways it is. As we travel this world from one country to the next, or we're here in the state of Nebraska and Omaha, or you travel to see family members to visit that church and to remember it's an embassy of the greater kingdom of our kingship with Jesus Christ. And to hear the gospel and the good news of Christ and to sing together with believers the same songs in Christ alone, even though it may be in a different language. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's an encouragement. It's, we find home, in a sense, in the midst of estrangement. And that is a beautiful blessing for Christians. When I do travel, and if you have, to see the state of, of children, to see the state of um, homelessness is pretty gripping. To get out and go into the market and to have, it seems like hundreds of, of children, very dirty, grabbing onto you, begging for money. And, and some are working for other people. Some are on the street. It's tough to watch. The United Nations Children's Fund estimated that there are between 143 and 210 million orphans worldwide. And that doesn't include those sold and trafficked in slavery or, or those in countries like the Middle East that do not necessarily report orphan statistics to United Nations Children's Fund. 210 million orphans. And if you think of the epidemic in the United States... In 2016, 45,000 suicides. That's 13 individuals per 100,000. It says the highest in 28 years. Feelings of alienation, loneliness, suicide. The opioid epidemic. In 2016, 42,000 deaths. 115 die a day. It's estimated 2.1 million are characterized by opioid use disorder. This is a fact of life. You see, the reason I say all that is because when you, it's a fact of the suffering, cursed life, right? We, we know something's wrong. When you look at scripture, it is giving us promises to those that are alienated and estranged, to those who are broken and far off. That's who we are apart from Jesus Christ. In fact, that's why Psalm 16, as we read in our scripture reading, can conclude with, you won't abandon my soul to, to Sheol, to death. Because that's the ultimate being cut off. We experience loneliness and alienation and estrangement here and now in this life. We go through 
ups and downs of it, and we ex- are exposed to sometimes graphic alienation. But to think of ultimate alienation is with God, that we are cut off from life in Him, and our doom is eternal death. When you think of it that way, as we build up to Psalm 16, maybe it would be helpful to just think of the storyline of Scripture. Adam was called in Luke 3.38, the Son of God. Adam, the Son of God. He was created in God's image. He's to rule in God's family. He was to guard the garden. He was to uphold God's word and God's law. And the tempter came in, who had already been cut off who'd already been, if you will, cast into the wilderness because he rejected God. He tempted Adam and Eve to deny the fatherhood of God, doubting, denying, distrusting, and disobeying until they too were cast out of the garden into the wilderness. But God did not leave them alone, right? The beautiful promise in Genesis chapter 3 in the spirit of the day is the idea of, of a roaring wind. We got, our translations often translated as God walking in the cool of the day in the breeze of the garden. But if you look through the testimony of Scripture, even thinking of Elijah at the mountain where he, he's, he's greeted with the fire and the storm, the spirit of the day is a trembling of the day. The day is often used of God coming in judgment. So here God had come in judgment. And what what are they doing? They're not going, let's go for a walk. They're hiding. And what does the Lord do? He gives them a promise. He meets them in their alienation. He meets them in the wilderness. Slays an animal, covers them to picture what Christ will do for them one day as the Lamb of God for sinners. God is a gracious God and he meets people in the wilderness, in their alienation. Abraham, remember, I remember doing a Bible study in, in North O and one of our ladies in the Bible study, I was telling them that Abraham was not born a Christian. He was from Ur, the Chaldeans, from Assyria region. He was an idolater. His family worshipped idols. And the Lord called him, rescued him, met him in his idolatry, and gave him the promises of Christ. And as I was trying to explain that, I said, you know, he's from, Becky's from the area of, uh, well, we, we're familiar with terrorists. Uh, he, in some sense, he was a terrorist. Uh, she didn't quite get that. She thought literally he was a terrorist. And so she went to her woman's Bible study and said, Pastor Chris is telling with Abraham is a terrorist. I, I didn't mean that. I just mean idolater. <laughs> he was like us. He wasn't this good moral person that God just thought, hey, I'm just going to bless him because he's good. No, he was an idolater. He was outside of the family of God. And God steps in and he promises in Genesis 12 too, I will make of you a great nation. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God would provide a family for Abraham. In Galatians 3.29, Paul expounds on this and he says, If you are Christ, remember Ephesians 2 calls us aliens. We were once strangers outside of the promises of God, outside of the family of God. And Paul says, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So we're brought into the family, Abraham's family, through faith in Jesus Christ. He meets us in our brokenness, in our alienation, in our sin, and provides salvation for us, pays for our sin, provides perfect righteousness that we need to stand before God through Christ. And as we continue to Psalm 16, though, Israel also experienced that. They, we see in Exodus, when we first open up the book, there is Israel. God's family in Egypt. And it was not a pleasant experience. They were enslaved to a harsh master. They're imprisoned in a hostile land. They're forced to give their children to foreign power to serve and eventually die. And Ezekiel reminds us they were even corrupted by foreign gods of the land, the idols. But then God says in Exodus 4.22 to Moses, You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me, meets them in their need and their brokenness and their enslavement to rescue. And we finally move to David because he's the one who authored this psalm by the ministry of the Holy Spirit given to us as a spiritual journal for our encouragement, for teaching us in the character of God and in salvation. We move to David, the writer of this psalm. And remember, when he's chosen to be the king of Israel, he has to wait And for a while, Saul, the king, is opposed to him, wants to kill him. And where does he hide? Outside of the land, among the Philistines. 
in Gath on the border of the Philistines. 1 Samuel 21.13 describes how he hid. He made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. He fought Goliath. He was an enemy to the Philistines. He's now an enemy to Israel. He's got no place to go. He's alienated. He's estranged. And so he has to hide in the alienation of insanity. He's cut off from his home, his family, and the tent of worship. And even when the Lord raised him up to be king in fulfillment of his promise, then his own son Absalom turns against him and he is driven again out of Jerusalem from his home into estrangement. One of God's promises is that he comes to those who are alienated and estranged. He does not come to those who think they've got it all together. The Pharisees thought they did, and the Lord said, it's not the healthy that need a physician, it's the sick. And so over and over again in the history of redemption throughout Scripture, we see this principle of in the wilderness, brokenness, alienation, sin. God comes. He's a gracious God. He saves. And so we see the heartbeat of Psalm 16 in light of alienation and the promise that God is our home. And this is ultimately true comfort because even though the world promises us and everything we see on media or hear on media, that this will satisfy you, that this will give you identity, this will bring you maximized joy, this will give you rest, we still have to face death, as Psalm 16 says. The mouth of Sheol, corruption. Will we escape that alienation? So it's a journal of God's promise and destitution. Look at verse 10 again. I just want you to see this. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. That's the ultimate promise. Now, how can we, as we're building, I think of this as a mountain. I think it might be helpful. We're not even in the text yet. We're at the base of the mountain. We've looked at redemptive storyline in light of alienation. We've looked at, focused on David, who's now the the author of this. It helps us to understand the setting that he's in. And then we, as we move up this mountain, it's going to find its, its point, its apex in Christ and should just thrill our souls. We've got to ask, why is this important for me? I'm not David. I'm not Israel. I'm far removed from this setting. Well, remember, number one, we already saw in Galatians 3 that we're brought into the family of God, into Abraham's household through faith in Jesus Christ. So, This is for our encouragement. We're part of this beautiful redeemed family in Christ. But secondly, 1 Corinthians 10, 11 tells us that these things happen to them as an example. But the word there is typos or type. It's a picture of something greater. He says they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. End of the ages being post-cross, post-resurrection, post-ascension until Christ comes back. It's for our instruction. So we can learn from this as well. As David, how does he respond as part of the, the redeemed family of God? How can we respond? But David is also a prophet. A prophet that is pointing to Christ. Could you go to Acts 2, 23 through 27? So yeah, we're plodding up that mountain right now. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2. Then we're going to get in the text and we're going to start moving very quickly through the benefits of the inheritance, this family inheritance in Christ. But I want you to see again, why, why is this important for us? In Acts 2, 23 through 27, Peter preaches this sermon. And he quotes from this text that we're familiar with from our scripture reading. Acts 2.23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So he's delivered for crucifixion. He's raised. The pains of death could not hold him down. Verse 25, For David says concerning him, he draws from our text, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. That is a crucial interpretive factor in Psalm 16. We need that. And David is applying it to Christ. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or Sheol or death or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet... 
And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. So on one level, David's experiencing this as a king of Israel. He's applying it personally to himself, but on another level, because of God's intention, it's prophetic, looking forward to what Christ will do, the greater Messiah, the greater David. Now, how does that benefit to us? Well, in Romans 4, 24 and 25, we're justified, declared righteous because of the resurrection of Jesus. No resurrection, no justification, no righteous standing before the judge. No way to call God Father because the justice demands of the law have been met apart from the resurrection. So with that, I think we're ready to jump in and look at some of these amazing blessings and why they are secure because of Christ ultimately who secures them for us. Okay, so four of them, four blessings of the inheritance of God's covenant family, four blessings. You can see this idea of inheritance in verse six. So I built it around The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So we're going to frame it around that. Four blessings. The inheritance of God's covenant family. Uh, We're going to see covenant goodness. And we get that by being united with the Lord. We're going to see covenant portion, number two. Covenant portion. That's the word he uses in verse five. The Lord is my chosen portion. We're going to see covenant counsel in verse seven. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. So the Lord actually teaches us. And then covenant life, and that's the whole resurrection section. Covenant goodness, covenant portion, covenant counsel, covenant life. These are all blessings that God secures for us in Christ. And the first one we're going to see is covenant goodness. Again, look at verse 1 and 2. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows, verse 4, of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Now the first question you should be asking is where do you get the idea of covenant? You've mentioned it a number of times. First of all, we find it in verse 10 under a different translation. Holy one. Now if you're familiar with uh, Christianity, one of the things that we love is to talk about grace and mercy. And that is the Hebrew word that comes across hesed, which describes loving kindness, uh, loving faithfulness. It can be translated covenant love. It's put into the context of a covenant. Because apart from covenant, mercy and grace are meaningless. There's two kinds of covenants mentioned in scripture. A covenant of law. It's a master-servant relationship. We're familiar with those. You have the Constitution of America is a covenant. There are blessings if you obey, and if you commit treason, there is a curse that falls on our our heads. That's part of our citizenship. That is a covenant of law. Uh, Neighborhood covenants, employer-employee covenants, there are obligations on both ends. The employer is committing contractually, legally, to pay the employee for work and not just take off with it after the work's been done. That's a covenant of law. There are obligations. Marriage. I understand there's Christian marriage that has a unique gospel promise, sacrificial flavor, but marriage legally is also a covenant of law. Both husband and wife are committing to serve one another and enjoy the blessings of marriage. If there's adultery, that covenant contract is broken. That's a covenant of law. We see it particularly with Deuteronomy 20 and 29, don't go there, but where God establishes this covenant of law with Israel and he calls them to obedience and they'll be blessed disobey and you'll be cursed. The provisions are simply this. If you obey the master, the king, the greater king, you will have my protection. That's how it worked in the ancient Near East. That's how treaties worked. If you were afraid of a nation, a power, you would bind yourself in covenant with another power and say, I'll pay taxes. I'll provide for the armed forces. You protect us. The problem with Israel is they would, instead of trusting God, they would go to Assyria and Egypt to do that, right? Anytime a foreign nation came up they're afraid of, they would covenantally bind themselves in with other nations. Uh, Joshua with Gibeah. Uh, Gibeans that came through and uh, they tricked Joshua and Israel and they didn't, Joshua and Israel did not pray to the Lord to seek wisdom. 
they put themselves in a covenant relationship where the Gibeonites said, we will serve you, we'll draw water, and Joshua said, we'll protect you. And even in the book of Joshua, when the Gibeonites are threatened by the Canaanites, Joshua is under obligation by covenantal contract to protect the Gibeonites. Now, if you fast forward to the days of Saul, Saul got prideful. He started murdering the Gibeonites, and God brought a curse on Israel until it was dealt with. That's how strong covenantal contracts are in the Bible. We are familiar with them. We just call them constitution. We don't always call them covenants, uh, unless you're in the legal field and, and you understand it well. That's one covenant. There's another covenant of promise or covenant of grace or covenant of gospel. And what that does is that the master takes care of the curses, the obedience and the curses and blessings on behalf of the servant and does it for them. In Psalm 89, David is rejoicing. In fact, I want to show you that. And remember, why are we doing all of this background? Because the word holy one is covenant keeper. It's hesed. So in Psalm 89, I want you to see the same word that's translated holy one. You ask, well, why is it called holy? Because he's the unique one. He's the holy one that's set apart to fulfill covenant. Psalm 89, verse 1. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord. See, this covenant of promise brings great joy because it's done on behalf of the servant. I will sing of the steadfast love. That's hesed. For, of, of the Lord forever. Notice how secure it is. These covenants of law can be broken with our disobedience, but not these covenants of promise. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness. He's recognizing that God is the one who establishes this covenant of promise. And it's based on God's faithfulness. So it can be kept forever to all generations. Verse 2. For I said, steadfast love, there's your hesed, this covenant love will be built up forever because it's attached to God's character. It cannot be brought down. Marriages may not last. Nations may not last. But a covenant with God, if it's based on his work, his doing, its promise and grace, it is faithful and forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You've said, verse 3, I have made a barit, a covenant, with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. That's the second kind, the most beautiful and glorious covenant. I say that because he responds in song. Who wouldn't? To know that God has fulfilled his covenant for us. Now that's built out of the Holy One, as we saw in verse 10. But also, if you look at verse 1 and 2. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now we get the idea of refuge. He's committed himself to the greater Lord. I say to the Lord, that's our title, Yahweh, the self-existent one. That's why he can say this is forever. Because God's nature is forever. Now here's the covenantal title. You are my Lord. That's Adonai or Master. In 2 Samuel 7, God establishes a covenant with David. And we see these terms of Adonai where David calls him Lord and David calls himself a servant of the Lord. And we see the word loving kindness in 2 Samuel 7, that God would establish a house, a family, and a throne through whom Christ would come. And that would be a covenant based on God's character for David. So all of these blessings are secured by covenant. They're not mamby-pamby promises in thin air. God establishes a legal covenant. He's a judge. He will not let his end go. The law is how we describe God's law is a covenant of law. We're called to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbors as ourselves. And when we have broken, and how many times we have, we violate that law, Judgment is coming. Death is coming because we've broken God's covenant of law that's been given with all creation in Adam. And what does he do? Sends his son to fulfill that law, to love God perfectly, to love his neighbor perfectly, perfect obedience. He goes to the cross to pay the curse of the law. So he earns the blessing, he pays the curse, and we get it in this covenant of loving kindness that is secure forever because Christ has done it all. That's, that's the context of these covenants. So we see again, verse 2, I say to Yahweh, the self-existent one, who's self-sufficient, you are my covenant Lord, Adonai, my master. 
I have no good apart from you. All my good is bound in this covenant of grace that you have given me. Now, I want to draw your attention to another title that I jumped over. And this is where I've got to be careful of time. Pastor Pat has asked me to talk at some point, maybe even we do, we do a series of conferences on this mythological push of the Bible. And so I want to use this as an opportunity to, to confront some of the ideology that's moving forward. It's what makes my heart beat. I love this kind of stuff. So I'll try to jump in and just touch it. And then we've got to get into these blessings. So verse, uh, verse 1, preserve me, O God. That's the, that's the title El. El or Elohim. But it's the shortened El. Now El is common during the ancient Near East. The Canaanites called their God El. Now, what scripture is doing, it's just like we use the title God. And when somebody says, I believe in God, you're like, well, what, what, who are you talking about? God is just a generic term to describe someone who is the author of life. But what God are you talking about? El is the same way. It's very generic. And it's used commonly in the culture surrounding Israel. Things like that have led scholars today in a number of even Christian universities, and believe me, it's throughout our secular universities, this idea that because the Bible uses common language of the ancient Near East, and the ancient Near East is built, has built their worldview on mythology, that therefore the Bible uses mythological language. That's what you're going to hear if you send your kids to UNL, um, most of our schools, and even a lot of so-called Christian schools. Uh, for instance, Wheaton. I'll throw that out there. For instance, it was in Westminster, Philadelphia for a while, and one of the men was booted out. But the idea is that God, from this perspective, just like he uses Hebrew language, uses mythological language to describe himself. So that leads at least Christians to say, well, then God's using mythological language, so we've got to demythologize it. Or it leads non-Christians who don't claim to be Christians to say, well, the Bible's all mythological anyway, so we've got to treat it as myth. Now, there's been, thankfully, some pushback on this, and I'll just commend a book to you by John Oswalt. He wrote a book, Bible Among Myths. He's a professor of Old Testament at Asbury Theological Seminary. He studies ancient Semitic languages. And he's written a whole book pushing back and saying, you know, in light of comparative studies, it's called comparative studies, where uh, people are looking at the Bible and then looking at the ancient Near East cultures and comparing Early on in comparative studies, early scholars and archaeologists saw the stark differences between the Bible and the ancient Near East. Very clear. They noticed similarities, no doubt, because it's in the same culture. But the dissimilarities are strong. For instance, in the culture of the ancient Near East mythology, there are a plethora of gods. And the way they create, first of all, they come out of this chaos, primordial nothingness. They often describe it as this black chaotic water. And they birthed from that. And then they birthed one another. And then finally, one splits another to create the sky and splits another to create the land and splits another to create the sea. So that the world is just an extension of these gods. That's the mythological interpretation. But the Bible is very clear that it does not look at God that way, nor ever has, that God is transcendent And he spoke the word into existence from his word. He does not pull from his being. He does not come from some kind of chaotic nothingness. In fact, I would argue that a lot of our naturalistic thinking that we're taught in the schools has the same idea of simple parts coming from a chaotic nothingness and then expanding and growing. The Bible is very clear that God is transcendent, distinct from creation. He's the creator. And that's what Psalm 16 is getting at. Preserve me, O God, recognizing that this El, God, the creator, whom all the nations use that title, God. He's Yahweh, verse 2, the self-existent one, who in Exodus 3 is a redeemer. Ah, that's new too to, to the Bible. John Oswald noted that this idea of the God, the true God, stepping in to redeem and provide grace is foreign to the ancient Near East. That's why when Israel's delivered out of the Red Sea, they say, who is like our God? I commend you, where will you find grace in this world, by the way? I don't care where you look. You'll get a lot of law. Where do you find grace? I don't mean just covering law, ignoring it. I mean someone who meets the demands of the law, justice, to provide grace. 
And that too is unique to the Bible and stands out. John Oswald's argument is that it's in the late last 20 years, the similarities and the dissimilarities have been flipped. 50 to 100 years ago, the dissimilarities were so strong, they understood the Bible is very unique. And oftentimes, unbelievers will say, well, we've got to explain how it can be so unique. If we believe that it evolved out of this polytheism of the ancient Near East, how do we explain it? So they push the writing of the Bible back farther and farther to try to explain its uniqueness. So that somehow it evolved. Scripture is very clear that God is separate, distinct, and he alone provides grace. Well, that should be drawn out in a conference. I get that. But sometimes for just a moment, at least lets you know what we do have answers. David is not looking to a plethora of gods that are dependent on nature. He's looking to the God who is self-existent and who redeems. And in light of that, he looks at these beautiful blessings. These blessings are secure. These blessings are for him. Okay, back to, let's look at, the, let's look at these blessings of this good covenant in verse 1. First of all, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Notice there is a statement of faith, union with God. How do we receive this good covenant Lord? It's in union. And we see that all throughout Ephesians and Colossians, do we not? In Christ, in him, you're united in him, trust in him, rely on him. David recognizes that we receive this through faith, through reliance, through union with the Lord. We're going to see how that can be so in a moment. But what does he get? Preservation. That the God whose law was against us in this covenant of grace because of our union with him is now for us. That is huge. He is my refuge. That's the benefit. Then he says in verse 2, another benefit of this beautiful covenant with the Lord is goodness. He says in verse 2, I have no good apart from you. He's, the Hebrew, and we can't go into too much detail here, uses a preposition emphasizing movement upward to ascend. I have no good above you. You are the highest of heights. You are the most high God, the, the only self-existent one. And so therefore, my greatest good, David recognizes, is found in God himself. God is my good, David is saying, because I am in you. Psalm 34, 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. He alone can satisfy our heart's desire for meaning, truth, and joy, and love for goodness and beauty and wisdom, holiness and justice and grace. He's the height of heights. We find it through faith in him. Have you ever wondered, when First Peter 1.12, we've been in there, Pastor Pat, Peter says, things into which angels long to look. Here these angels surround God's throne and they're drinking him up, if, you, if I could use that term, just amazed at his glory and beauty. There's no one that compares to him. And so they're, they're drinking him up like flowers drink up the sun and then they give praise to him. And you know what First Peter says? They long to look at redemption because that is the height of heights. I, 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 the angels get God, okay? He, he's, he's distinct and transcendent and set apart in glory. He's not like us. He's the uncreated one, the self-existent one. But that he would stoop down to pay a covenant of law that we have violated in Adam in order to give us grace, that is mind-blowing. Who does that? The highest being stepping down so low. The Puritans love to say that's one thing to compare on a creaturely level to other creatures, would you step down to a, a maggot's level to try to save the maggot from the sun's rays when you've dumped out the garbage can? And even if you could or would, that would be on a, a creature level. We're both creatures. But God is uncreated. And in Christ, he has stooped down, added humanity to fulfill the law of God for us that was against us, that justice might be served to provide grace. 
who does that? And so the angels that are amazed and don't want to even look away from the glory of the beauty of their creator is amazed at grace. The saints are another blessing. So preservation, refuge, that God is for us. Paul says, if he is for us, who can be against us? Our greatest threat was God, his law against us, that we have violated in our sin nature and our disobedience and in our representative Adam. He was our greatest threat and that's been taken away. Now he's our greatest security, our greatest refuge. And so therefore he's our greatest good. But notice he always saves in community. He did that with the redemption of Israel out of Egypt. He's done that with his people, the church. He's joined us together in the body of Christ. Verse three, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So another blessing is we're joined together with other believers. David recognizes they're the majestic ones. They're the ones that are part of this covenant family that get the blessing of having their greatest good in God and their refuge and preservation in him by being joined to him. We're also joined with other believers. And so they're where my delight is. But then in verse 4, he says, those sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. I won't even take their names on my lips. Even though the idols of our world promise us identity and hope and salvation from our failures, it only multiplies sorrows. He says, I, I won't even honor them. I serve the true God. Again, no, notice, by the way, if you're going to class and you're sitting there and they're saying the Bible is just like everything else. no, no. That is not the case. God is distinct, transcendent. He's a saving God. But look at this. He contrasts to the gods of the nations. How can you say they're all coming from the same angle? You're taking a faith commitment on that, a presupposition on that. You just drive back at the text itself. Sorry, those kind of things bleed out every once in a while. I remember one time when we were in California and uh, Rob and I were newly married and we were eating in a nice restaurant. Um, She knows this one's coming. Um, and I've mentioned it a few times, but there was a whole bunch of kids that kept going back to the table behind us and taking pictures. And she, she turned around, and she didn't say it to me quietly. You know, normally you'd say, well, you know, say it to her husband quietly. No, she turned around and addressed the table and said, you think you were famous or something? And then she turned around with eyes this big and said, honey, that is Drew Barrymore. I just put my foot in my mouth. Of course she's famous. <laughs> I'm like, who's Drew Barrymore? E.T.? I mean, she's with this whole list. I don't know. And I tried to comfort her, right? She's so embarrassed at that moment. What can you do? You know, nothing. You can do nothing. I said, you know, it's so amazing that she doesn't realize that she's in the presence of those who've been graced with Christ who have the Lord as their portion and inheritance. It's in those moments that we recognize, wait a minute, this is, this is amazing on a human level, but think about the glory of God in Christ and what he's given to us. Secondly, so the first is covenant goodness. Second is a covenant portion. And we're just going to address them real quickly because I want to to take this up to the mountain peak here. Verse five, so our covenant portion. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now he's drawing from Joshua 13, 33, where To the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance, the text says. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance. So what you often see in the Bible is that the Levites are are given these priests on behalf of the Lord as a paradigm or picture of what the Lord's going to do in saving his people. That's why Peter can talk about the church being priests, offering living sacrifices. David's already doing that. He's recognizing that the Levites are a paradigm for believers, a picture of believers. And the Levites didn't receive an inheritance in the land. They received God. Just as believers, we receive God as our inheritance. That's the application that David's applying. But he's using the physical terminology of the, the lines, a chosen portion, a beautiful inheritance. When Joshua brought the people into the land, the land was demarcated uh, broken up into certain portions and inheritance for each of the tribes and each of their families. They've come out of alienation, oh, to have a family, to have a land, to have a home, to have a refuge. That was their desire, and the Lord met that in his promise, uh, redemption out of Egypt. 
But what David's doing now is he's taking the Levitical promise that God is their inheritance and then the concepts of the lot, lines that Israel was familiar with and going to the land to receive their home and he's applying it to the promise that we have in the Lord. That is, God is our inheritance and nobody can take that away and that is the most beautiful inheritance. It excels all because of who he is. He's put it together in a covenant and he will not forsake it. So that everything that is God's is now, and this is crazy to think about, ours. His grace is for us. His good is for us. His glory is for us. His wisdom is for us. For God to be our God, Brooks, Thomas Brooks said, it includes it all. It's secure in verse 5. You hold my lot. So the Lord will not let it go. He's the eternal one. It's beautiful in verse 6. I have a beautiful inheritance. Again, he's applying it to the Lord. It's pleasant. David Dixon challenges us if Christ is our inheritance. And he's communicated to it as a chosen portion and cup like food. Then think of the blessings of who the Lord is for you and what he's done for you. In other words, when you're troubled by your guilt and shame, glory in Christ your righteousness because he is yours and you are his. When you're troubled by pain and suffering, glory in Christ that he's been raised and you too will be raised in him. When you're troubled by your unfaithfulness, glory in Christ's faithfulness. When you're troubled by your lies and deceit that haunt you, glory in Christ as your truth Rest in him. He has spoken the truth for you. He's been obedient. He satisfied God's law. When you're troubled in your marriage, remember that Christ is your true husband. Your family is troubled. Christ is your brother. When your investments fall short of your expectations, Christ is your eternal inheritance. When you're troubled by your home and keeping it up, he's your eternal refuge. When you're troubled by your work and your ability to fulfill it, remember Christ ultimately satisfied the work of the Father for us. So covenant goodness, God is our good. Covenant portion, the Lord is our inheritance. Covenant counsel, verse 7 and 8. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Now, this is where David begins to slide into speaking of Christ. But I want you to notice, he's blessing the Lord who gives him counsel. In other words, he's so saturated with the word of God. God has spoken his word, given his covenant promises in Christ, in his word. He's saturating his heart with it so that his heart then instructs him at night. It's a good principle for us. To think God's thoughts after him, to remember his promises so that in the darkness of trial, the heart is so saturated with the word of God that we're instructed because of the counsel of God that's first instructed us. So we want to get to the spiritual duty and discipline of reading his word, of fellowshipping with the saints to fill our heart and to saturate it with his truth. But now notice this bold statement. Okay, now we're transitioning to the greater David, as we saw with Peter. He referred this text and following to Christ. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Now, who can say that? (laughs) Now, this is covenantal talk because the obligation of the servant was to set the Lord, the master, always before him. Don't violate God's covenant. In other words, how do I take this verse and just apply it to me? Oh, okay, so the Lord counsels me. My heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. That's a term of a king in covenant. The right hand to have the king securing you in a covenant relationship with that greater king. The lesser king is a steward then of the greater king. That's the image used of being at the right hand and secure. But the response then of this servant is to say, Again, I'm going to read it. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. That is as much to say, I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Always. Now, who in the world can say that? And that's where this text moves us to the greater David, to Christ. 
He is the ultimate one. Now, in light of that, I want to take you to Acts again. Acts 13. Verse, uh, Acts 13, verse, uh, let's see, uh, start with verse 13 and then jump to 33. Because then what I want to do is go back to Psalm 16 and draw these out from Christ's perspective. And this is why we can make these claims, God is my greatest good, he's my refuge, he's my strength, I'm joined together with other believers, this is my, my whole delight. It's because ultimately Christ is the one who's made claim to this, secured the covenant. So, Acts 13, just see the good news. We bring you, verse 13, the good news, the gospel, that what God promised to the Father. That's the promise, the good news. Verse 33. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, oh, there's our text. You will not let your holy one, the covenant keeper, the Hesed, see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Verse 38. But let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That's why we start in verse 13 with the good news of the gospel. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Psalm 16 applied to Christ. Now go back then to Psalm 16. And let's draw these promises out from Jesus' perspective. He's the ultimate covenant keeper. To give us a covenant of grace, he's going to have to fulfill the covenant of law for us. We know that in John 6, he listens to the Father. So verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. Christ listening to the Father. We see him often in that posture. And then verse 8, what does his life look like? I have set the Lord always before me. That was Christ's commitment. Spoken through the prophet David. Because he's at my right hand, Isaiah, Psalm 2, Isaiah 49, Psalm 2, describe a a contract between the father and son to secure redemption. He's using that kind of talk. Because he's at my right hand, the father's made promises to me in contract. I'm going to fulfill them. I shall not be shaken. Shaken by what? He's about ready to face death. He's about ready to face the judgment of hell for sinners. And even through his humanity, would he not be in... uh, Well, you just think of the garden event where he's sweating drops of blood as he's about ready to take that judgment upon himself. He says, because I've set the Lord before me, because I've fulfilled the commitments to the Lord, I've obeyed him perfectly, he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Verse 9, therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. Every part of me, I'm I'm ready to go into this with great joy and confidence, our Lord is saying. Verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One, the covenant keeper, for our salvation see corruption. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life in your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And that should draw your attention to, to Hebrews chapter 12. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What drove him as he's standing on the brim of death and the judgment of God to push through that, to know with confidence that he would not be abandoned, that he would not be judged as a sinner because he had always set the Lord before him perfectly. And in verse 11, as he's about ready to step into the paths of death and the grave, the Lord, the Father, would unveil to him the path of life and he would bring him to his presence, would raise him. He would be ascended into a place of fullness of joy because at the Father's right hand are pleasures forevermore. This he did on our behalf. Now we can echo it as David did because Christ has ascended 
to the place of fullness of joy and pleasure at God's right hand on our behalf as our representative through his humanity, we too now can lay claim that he will not abandon my soul to death when it comes. That he will make known to me the path of life which he's given in Christ's faithfulness and fulfilling salvation. That in his presence there is unmitigated unthreatened joy and pleasure that the world cannot compete with, but the devil and the world and our flesh would draw us away from. Lord, we ask that you keep us focused on Christ. That's our prayer. These are the blessings of our covenant inheritance in the family of God. If I could close with just, with this. Jesus took refuge in God when Adam failed. I'm just going through Psalm 16. Jesus declared that God is his greatest good when Adam refused God's goodness. That is, Jesus loved the Lord with all of his heart. Jesus truly delighted in those who would become the saints of God, the children of God. John 13, 1 says he loved his own unto the utmost, so he fulfilled even the promise of the saints being his delight. Jesus rejected idolatry. Even when the te- devil tempted Jesus to worship him, Jesus declared that one must worship and serve God and God alone. Jesus trusted in his father's promise to him to raise him and exalt him. He said, Father, you are my beautiful inheritance. Jesus listened to the father's counsel for he came to do the work and the will of the father. Jesus set the Lord before him as first. And Jesus believed that the father would secure his whole being. His soul would be filled with the joy of the father even after receiving his wrath for sinners. His physical body would not be abandoned to death nor see corruption, but would be brought into the very presence of the father to enjoy his pleasures forever. And Jesus set the Lord always before him so that we can receive God as our inheritance in God's covenant family. Because Jesus was raised We have a good father, an everlasting home, an everlasting family, an everlasting inheritance because we have God himself. Psalm 16. Lord, we get so distracted by our own hearts, by the world around us. Remind us of the beauty of your glorious character. Set before us Jesus, who is remarkable. As Peter said, to whom else shall we turn? Lord, nothing in this world can offer grace. A grace that truly satisfies your justice. Lord, we are not asking for a corrupt grace that just sweeps injustice underneath the carpet. We want true justice in this world, but we know that we are offenders too. And only Christianity, only Christ, only you, God have provided a way for us to have the law met and provide grace in Christ's fulfillment. And so we bless and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.